Well, let's turn at this time in our copies of God's Word to the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, the third chapter, verses 17 through 19. Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. Let's give attention now to God's Word, beginning in verse 17. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of His Word to us this evening. Amen. Seeking the Lord's help, let's focus our attention upon verse 17. Once again, the context as we continue through Genesis chapter 3 is that Adam and Eve have fallen into sin. And God has confronted them as the first evangelist. God came into the garden. Adam and Eve hid in the bushes, in the trees of the garden. Didn't want to come face to face with their Creator knowing that they had sinned against Him. They were fearful when they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And so they hid themselves, verse 8, from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord called to them, called to Adam specifically, where are you? He calls the man to account immediately. Adam, where are you? Adam blames Eve and blames God for giving him Eve. It's the woman's fault whom you gave me. She gave me the fruit and I ate, so he makes an excuse. God then turns to Eve and addresses her sinful participation in this fall into human sin. He speaks to the woman, what is this, verse 13, what is this you have done? And the woman blames the serpent, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And so the Lord then turns to the serpent and deals with his sinful participation in man's fall into sin. And he curses the serpent. And in that curse, verse 15, we saw the first gospel promise that God would raise up the seed of the woman to crush the serpent's head, even the Lord Jesus Christ who came to destroy the works of the devil. Then he moves back to the woman. We've spent however many weeks dealing with the curse upon the woman and upon women in general in this fallen world the multiplication of sorrow in conception, pain in bringing forth children. We spent lots of time on that and upon the particular burden that's been placed upon women as a judgment for sin in connection with childbirth. We've also discussed how the godly woman is able to have victory over that curse, to be blessed and to trample the serpent underfoot from 1 Timothy 2. We talked about uh, her faith love, holiness, and self-control. Then we proceeded to discuss 
the, the second aspect of the curse upon the woman and upon women in general that they would have a desire to usurp their husband's authority and that that would be poison in the marriage relationship that not only would, would the woman reject what would be beneficial to her, a husband who rules his household well, but also you can see that the man's response to this practical feminism, as we said, is that he's going to be an oppressive tyrant. He shall rule over you, lord it over you. So we saw the aspect there as well. And we talked at length about what it means to rule in a godly way and what it means for a husband to abuse his authority and to be a sinful head of household. And we talked about a woman's ability to overcome by the grace of God this tendency to rebel against her husband's authority. And we said that the way she does that is by looking to her husband in heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is a perfect example of obedience to the fifth commandment in terms of honoring authority and submitting even to his heavenly father in the incarnation. So we've looked at all of these things, but now we've come back to the man. It started with the man, it started with Adam, and it ends with Adam. God is going to have dealings with Adam. It's not as though, you know, if you perhaps got the impression in the sermon series, well, you know, Adam got off easy. He blamed the woman and then spent all this time talking about her and about the serpent and so on and so forth. But God comes back to Adam. The buck stops there. And that's where we're at now. Verse 17, Adam is not let off the hook. There's going to be a curse upon him, upon mankind, universally In Adam, all who descend from him by ordinary generation, that means everybody except Jesus, is going to be cursed and endure sin and misery in this world because of Adam's sin. But it's also a curse upon all men. Not just all mankind, as I just said, but in particular, just as the curse upon Eve had a special relationship to women in this fallen world, even so the curse upon Adam is a curse upon all men, all males in Adam. There's a unique gender-specific aspect to this curse, and we need to pay careful attention. God says to Adam, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it. So he calls out Adam for his sin, then he proceeds to issue the curse. He curses the ground. He curses Adam's labor, making it toilsome and difficult. He curses the environment. Thorns and thistles are going to grow up. It's going to be difficult even to put bread on the table. By the sweat of your face, you'll barely be able to survive with a loaf of bread till you return to the ground and to the dust from which you came. So, This is a curse upon all mankind in Adam. It has implications for all of us, but we're going to be focusing especially upon its implications for men. And I think it's very important for us to do that because in our own day, uh, it has been suggested, and perhaps it's correct, that the church has in large measure failed to cultivate biblical manhood. The church of Jesus Christ throughout the world during its... uh, 2,000 year history, has often found itself in a position where the, the, the predominant demographic in the church is female. 
That is often the case, and there are various reasons for that. And the church in America, at times, has lacked an emphasis upon masculinity. It has lacked an emphasis upon biblical manhood, the responsibilities and duties of a husband as a head of household. It has lacked an emphasis upon preparing our boys to become young men, to be the kind of men we'd want our daughters to marry. We've lacked an emphasis upon these things. And I think we've lacked an emphasis upon the real Jesus of the Bible, who was not merely a human, but he was a man. He had a job. He paid taxes, at least in some cases. He, he was a real man. He took care of his family, in this case his mother. Jesus was a man. And Jesus came into this world not only to experience the full range of human emotions and human suffering and fallenness and affliction for for both genders, but He was a man. He was a man of sorrows. And because the church has not often emphasized manhood and masculinity, and because in our own culture it has become politically incorrect to sympathize with men, to point out difficulties that men face in particular, really to point out anything with respect to men that is unique to them. It's become politically correct, uh, incorrect to do all of those things. Men are often left to the side, ignored, or it's assumed they'll be addressed in the broad swath of applications. But the fact is that The Bible doesn't do that. The Bible is specific. It it directs specific things to women. It directs specific things to men. We're not going to spend as much time on men as we did on women, but we're going to give, we're we're going to spend quite a bit of material, quite quite a bit of time on it. Jesus can sympathize with what men are experiencing. There are many people in our day today that are committing suicide. The suicide rates are off the charts unbelievably high. More people murder themselves than die in uh, auto accidents every year. Uh, And many of those people are men. And there are many men who are struggling, who are depressed, who feel afflicted. And the church needs to proclaim that Jesus Christ is a man of sorrows who can sympathize and can set an example for men. And In this passage, as we look at the great trials and the great curse that's put upon men, we need to emphasize that as well. That Jesus says to women who deal with many unique afflictions and difficulties, He says to men as well, Come unto Me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So this is gender specific, and it is self-consciously so. Now, what is this curse that God brings upon Adam and upon all mankind and upon all men in particular? Well, first, it is a curse that manifests itself in terms of relationship. Adam is cursed relationally. He's cursed relationally. You can see it earlier in the chapter that when the eyes of Adam and Eve were opened, they knew that they were naked And they made coverings for themselves to hide from God and to hide from each other. They were ashamed of their nakedness. They hadn't been ashamed before, but when sin comes in, it it, it breaks down the relationship, the trust. And so they're self-conscious. They cover their nakedness in the sight of one another. Verse 10, you see Adam once again trying to throw Eve under the bus. 
I heard your voice in the garden, Lord, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God says, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat of the fruit? Verse 12, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. So he blames his wife. He doesn't take responsibility for his own actions. Uh, He's already throwing her under the bus. Breakdown in the relationship, obviously. You also have verse 16 where we're told that the woman will seek to usurp over her husband and he will rule abusively and tyrannically over her. Breakdown in the relationship. We said that practical feminism is primarily a curse upon women, but of course, indirectly, it is a curse upon the man as well. So he's cursed relationally. And you can see the connection here, the way verse 17 begins, that Adam's fall into sin began with a relational problem. That was part of the problem that led to sin. Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which was forbidden. Now, it's not always wrong, obviously, to heed the voice of your wife, men. In Genesis chapters 21 or 22, Abraham is confronted by the Lord for not heeding the voice of Sarah, his wife, in terms of sending Hagar, the bondwoman, and her son Ishmael out of the household. Sarah was emphasizing that and calling Abraham to do that, and that is what God had commanded Abraham to do, and he didn't do it. He ought to have heeded her voice as she's bringing to his attention God's command. But you have another instance with Abraham, where he heeds the voice of his wife, Sarah, when she comes up with the whole idea of of him taking on Hagar as a second wife in the first place. And it produces all kinds of problems in the home, obviously, and for many generations to come. So how do we tell the difference? Well, obviously, it's the man's job to discern the will and the commandment of God. He needs to be discerning that for himself and for his household, and he needs to lead and set an example in keeping God's commandments. He needs to to be taking initiative, taking action. When Eve was interacting with the serpent, Adam was standing by. She gave to her husband who was with her. He should have actively stepped in and tossed the serpent out of the garden. He should have stepped in and implemented the law of God in his home. And set that example. He didn't do that. He was passive. He, he followed Eve's lead. And that was not the right thing to do. It was a role reversal. He didn't lead. He was led. And it led him, essentially, to violate the commandment of God. And I think we can say, even in the case when Abraham was told to heed Sarah's voice... Really, Abraham should have seen the whole thing coming and done the right thing in the first place. He shouldn't have, in that case, needed Sarah to say anything to him. When she did say it, he needed to follow it. But the point is, the man is expected to be studying God's Word, God's revelation, studying God's providence, and seeking as best as he can to take the lead in following God's commands. So because of that role reversal in the relationship, this curse comes upon the relationship and it is difficult for the man. I'm not saying it's primarily difficult for the man. You could argue it's worse on the woman. And that debate can continue. But it is 
extremely difficult for the man as well. He's given over to a sinful tendency to tyrannical oppression, or he's given over to the sinful tendency to step back and be passive. But either way, the marriage falls apart. And you look at our society and you see the the rate of divorce from the first marriage to the second marriage to the third marriage. By the time all the calculations are done, if we can barely hit a 50% rate of marriages continuing after 10, 20, 30 years, I mean, that's amazing. Probably more than half of marriages end in divorce. And so you can see the curse upon the relationship. God had invented marriage as a blessing for the man. It is not good for the man to be alone. And so God makes him a suitable helper. And there's this cooperative effort, and, and it's to, to take dominion and to be fruitful and multiply and to, and to rule over the earth as husband and wife, as king and queen. But in a fallen world, it's not like that. Uh, look at Job. When he's at his worst point, hitting rock bottom, his suitable helper comes to him and says, curse God and die. The reality in a fallen world is that for both men and women, but we're focusing here on the man, the curse upon the marriage relationship is extremely difficult. What ought to have been a source of help and encouragement and cooperation can often lead to, as Solomon says, the wilderness, alienation, the corner of the housetop. And so, men, when you experience this sort of thing in a relationship, recognize this is the curse of God upon sin. And recognize that in Adam's fall, we sinned all, as the New England Primer puts it. So when we experience these things, number one, don't be surprised if you experience difficulties in relationships. But at the same time, humble yourself. This is your fault. I mean, as Christians, we believe in original sin. We believe in the covenant of works. We believe that Adam sinned on our behalf and that we sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. So there's no place for us to be self-righteous and start pointing the finger. The fact of the matter is, this misery has come into your life, even if it's just a small drop of misery in your relationship, it has come into your life because of the sin that you committed in Adam. You see how the doctrine of man's fall humbles all of us. It causes us to recognize how we deserve far more than our sin than, than, than we get for our sins. God is gracious. And in this fallen world, He does allow marriage to continue. He does allow it to be a great blessing beyond what we could imagine it becoming. And yet... This misery is there. We deal with it by humbling ourselves and seeking the Lord. We'll say more uh, about how to deal with it, but let's move on. Secondly, in Adam, all men are cursed vocationally. Vocationally. And you can see that the woman was cursed in terms of childbirth, and you can see her vocation in, in the marriage of giving birth and watching the children and things like this in terms of her domestic duties. And you can see the man's duty reflected in the curse. God had uh, created Adam in his own image to take dominion. He had put him inside the garden 
to tend it and to keep it. So God gave Adam a job. In fact, he gave him a job before he gave him a wife. Uh, That's a good order to follow. And he gave him that job and he called him to work. And he established the six days of labor and the seventh day of rest for the Sabbath. And Adam was called on those six days, just like it's reflected in the Ten Commandments, six days you shall labor. That's his vocation. Now, Adam is tending a garden in the Garden of Eden, but this still applies to all men today. You are called to work. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. Not saying it's just men, but I'm saying to men, if you're not working to provide for yourself and to provide for others, you're sinning. It's not just... The fourth commandment doesn't simply say to rest and have a day of spiritual rest and worship one day a week. It does say that, but it implies, it assumes that the other six days you will be engaged in work to provide for your family. That's not saying you can't have a five-day work week, but, but you get the point. You're working. You have a job. And you're providing. And specifically, specifically before we hit the, this, the, the language of the curse here, I want, I want to point out a couple of verses in the New Testament because this is such a practical and concrete aspect of biblical masculinity that we often just forget about it. Acts 20, verse 33, listen to what the Apostle Paul says to the Ephesian elders. Acts chapter 20, verse 33 He says, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who were with me. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. So, Paul's not providing for his family. He doesn't have a wife. He doesn't have children but he's still providing for himself and for those around him. And he has left over, he he has substance left over to support the weak. Those who can't work on those six days, they have a disability, they have some type of sickness or ailment. Something is preventing them from providing for themselves, uh, widows, orphans, and so on. He provides for them by the sweat of his own labor. And he says, remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, it's more blessed to give than to receive, but you're not going to be able to give unless you work to earn something that you can then give. Unless you work to provide for yourself, because it would be irresponsible to give to somebody else and not provide for yourself. So you work to provide for yourself, then you have a surplus, and then you can help out other people. And Jesus says that that is a blessed enterprise, and that's specifically something Paul does as a man of God. And he implies that if we're living on the dole, whether it's the government or someone in our family just providing for us while we sit idly by twiddling our thumbs, that's covetousness. That's covetousness. I have coveted, I have not coveted what other people have, says Paul. I haven't coveted those things. I've worked to earn the things that I need for myself and those who are with me. 
That's biblical manhood. That's, that's our vocation. Uh, Ephesians 4, verse 28. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. That's telling us that the Eighth Commandment, don't steal, implies, positively speaking, that we have a duty to work with our hands or however we can work, to work with the abilities God's given to us, the strength we have with our hands, and do what is good. So don't take a job that's doing something sinful, but produce something valuable, labor with your hands, use your gifts and abilities, use your energy so that you will have something to give those who are in need, implying that if we don't work to support ourselves and then have money to give to other people apart from some, you know, again, some kind of disability or some extraneous reason, apart from that, we're stealing. There's a sense in which we're stealing in general terms from the church that we should be supporting and from people in need that we should be supporting. We're breaking the Eighth Commandment, which requires us to work and promote our own and our neighbor's outward estate. So the fact is, Paul, throughout the New Testament, emphasizes this, and uh, he really hits it home in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 6 Often we pay a lot more attention to 2 Thessalonians 2 and you know, the man of sin and the Antichrist. And as useful as those passages are, we don't want to spend so much time on those things that we forget the practical value that is contained in the third chapter. Here Paul warns the Thessalonians against idleness. He says, but we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. You'll see here that disorderly means to be idle. Listen, for you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Now, let me just say, we are going to get back to Genesis and how work has been made more difficult, uh, but we have to emphasize work in general before we do that. And here what Paul says is that he and the other apostles and preachers did not eat anyone else's bread free of charge. Now, they had the right to do that, but they gave up that right in order to set an example and for various other reasons. But he's saying we ought not as men to eat somebody else's bread. If you're an adult male, then you shouldn't be eating somebody else's bread. You should be working to buy bread to support so that you can eat bread, so that your family can eat the bread that you've purchased. You need to be the breadwinner for yourself and for others. Maybe even giving food and resources to other people in need. But don't eat anyone else's bread free of charge. He says, work with labor and toil night and day following that apostolic example of manhood. He goes on to say, you know, they, they would have authority to collect a salary, but it's, a, it's just he's setting an example. Verse 9, trying to set an example of biblical manhood for the people in Thessalonica. 
Verse 10, for even when we were with you, we commanded you this, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. Notice it uses the word will. We're not talking about people that can't work. We're talking about people that won't work. If anybody won't work, neither shall he eat. That's, that's a biblical principle of ethics that should be applied across the board, family, church, and state. But if, if you're an adult man, then you need to be working and you need to be providing. And you shouldn't be eating somebody else's bread. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such, we command and exhort through the Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. That's the biblical man, eating his own bread, using his own hands, his own efforts, getting his own job, working that job in quietness, not complaining, eating his own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. To work, if it's a lawful moral calling, is a good work. Uh, It's a ministry. It's a blessing. God made work before the fall. This is just as much as marriage, just as much as the Sabbath. This is a creation ordinance, the ordinance of work. It's a good thing. Don't grow weary in it. Don't do it for a while and then quit. Continue. Persevere. He says, and if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So this is a matter actually of church discipline. If you're not working on the six days, it's just as sinful as you know, if somebody works on the seventh day, works on the Sabbath. It's a sin. It's a scandal. It's worthy of church discipline. So this is the calling, the vocation that God has given to men, not excluding women, but focusing on men tonight. And my friends, behold the man, Jesus Christ. In Mark chapter 6, verse 3, what did they say of Jesus? They called Him the carpenter. That's how the locals in, in His home area, Nazareth and the surrounding regions, that's how they referred to Him. In one of the Gospels, the son of the carpenter, and in Mark 6, 3, the carpenter. So, behold the man. The man had a job. The man went to work, and the man worked with his hands. And it, he, he, what he says, it's blessed, more blessed to give than to receive. Jesus says that from experience. He worked, he earned, he gave. We can assume that's the case, that he practiced what he preached. Behold the man. Now, obviously, Genesis chapter 3 is telling us that that biblical ordinance of work has gotten much harder. And this is the curse upon the man whose specific task it is to go out and be the breadwinner, bring home the bacon, go out, of course they weren't eating meat at this point, but, but go out and earn the resources for the family and provide in that way. That is the job of the man. Not that the man never helps with the children or the wife never helps on the other side, but you get the point. That's the focus of the man's vocation. And God curses it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. Rather than working for you, the environment that you live in will now be against you. The ground 
when Adam was tending the garden, everything was perfect. The entire environment was a lush paradise. It was probably, in a certain way, one of the easiest jobs you could possibly have. But the fact is, when Adam and Eve were sent out of the garden, Adam was called to work the ground and to toil in difficult, back-breaking labor by the sweat of his face. All of the words, all of the imagery in these verses is just stressing and emphasizing the difficulty of the work that God called the man to do. Survival was possible, but it was only possible through great backbreaking labor. Thorns and thistles. You're going to try to grow a crop, but all these weeds and thorns and thistles are going to grow up. There will be pestilence. There will be a shortage of resources, famine, drought. The entire, as I said, the entire environment, as it were, uh, will be against you. As it says of the land of Canaan at one point, that this is a land that devours its inhabitants. That's kind of the idea here. Survival is going to be very, very challenging for the man. Hard labor, toilsome labor. God says, man, you've rebelled against me. The environment over which you were supposed to have dominion is going to rebel against you. So, so when you face difficulties in your garden or in whatever, whatever you're doing as you work the ground this spring, if you're working outside, if you're doing yard work, recognize that the world is the way it is. The work is that much harder. The sun's beating down. It's scorching you and so on. All of these things ought to humble us and remind us that we have sinned against God. And God has cursed our work, making it more and more difficult. It's our fault. No excuses. We can't say, well, I'm not going to go work. I'm not going to get a job because this, that, and the other. And, and no. We, we need to suck it up and we need to work because that's what God's called us to do. It's our fault, and so we plow ahead. We've, we're cursed vocationally. Thirdly, cursed physically. All men in Adam, both all mankind and specifically men here, are cursed physically. He says in verse 19, In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Now, it's a fact of history that women generally outlive men. And part of the reason for that at certain periods in our own country, uh, I'm not sure about it today, but certainly with the Industrial Revolution and even in agricultural societies, men had uh, more dangerous jobs very often. They were in factories, all kinds of pollution, all kinds of reasons that men going out of the home to work faced many things that caused them to die before women died. And obviously, death and childbirth is a factor uh, for the women as well. But, but men face this duty, this difficulty of working every day of their lives until they return to the ground. And so this is reflecting fatigue, aging, Injury, sickness, disability, death. God made man to live forever. And by the time you get you know, into your 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, your, your body is wearing out. Your body is wearing down. And you see the effects of this curse. 
And, uh, you know, if you shake hands with your mechanic and he's, you know, 50, 60, 65 years old or something like that, you know, you feel the gnarled grizzle, you know, you feel he, he's been working for a long time and the effect upon his body is seen and felt. This is a physical curse. And throughout the scriptures, I'm not going to quote all the verses, but throughout the scriptures you see that this language of returning to the dust is speaking of death. Let me just give you one example. Psalm 104, verse 29. You hide your face, they are troubled. You take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. So, out of the dust the man was formed, and to the dust he shall return. There's a futility about this. 1 Corinthians 15 says that it, the, the death and burial is a horrible thing to think about. Our, our bodies are sown in corruption, rotting carcasses, sown in corruption, sown in dishonor. Abraham bought a burial plot for his wife to, to get his dead out of his sight, to, to bury her, to bury her body before this process took place. Sown in corruption, sown in dishonor, sown in weakness. And perhaps you've had a relative or maybe your own father, a, a strong man, someone that you respected, someone that had a, a great amount of strength and honor and dignity and masculinity, and, and then perhaps you saw them fade and waste away through some type of sickness, or you found that, uh, you know, as you're, as you're carrying the casket to, to, to his final resting place, it just overwhelms you, this flood of emotion at the futility of life, ashes to ashes and dust to dust, sown in corruption, dishonor and weakness. Death is unnatural. We are more than dust. And our bodies are made in the... Well, our souls are made in the image of God. Our bodies are temples of the image of God. As believers, temples of the Holy Spirit. When we see somebody alive and then we see the effects of death, it is utterly unnatural. Cursed physically. Fourthly, cursed spiritually. Cursed spiritually. The imagery of dust here is not limited to the physical realm. You'll recall that God said that when Adam and Eve sinned, dying you shall die. You shall surely die was the the translation, but literally in the Hebrew, dying you shall die. And we know that involves more than physical death. It involves physical death, yes, but it also involves spiritual death, dead in trespasses and sins. And when God says that to the dust you shall return, it's not simply speaking of physical death because that's the same type of language God used when He cursed the serpent. Back to verse 14. He says to the serpent, because you've done this, you are cursed. He goes on, on your belly you shall go, you shall eat dust. The dust is representing the curse upon the serpent. Man returning to the dust. Man being represented here in terms of his curse, in terms of this dust imagery, is pointing to the fact that through sin, all mankind died and became bond slaves 
to Satan himself. And that's exactly the language that Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. He connects our spiritual death, which of course, as we said, dying you shall die. He connects it with our bondage to Satan. Ephesians 2, 1, And He made you alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. So, humanity switched sides. Men and women, but here thinking of men, switched sides. They were God's representative, God's ambassador, the prophet, priest, and king of their home to represent God and all of His truth and all of His glory to their family. But now they switch sides. Children of disobedience, under the dominion of Satan, the prince of the power of the air, spiritually dead in trespasses and sins. And my friends, that's where we all are by nature. We come into this world under the dominion of Satan. Psalm 72 verse 9 tells us that the Lord Jesus Christ in advancing His kingdom and defeating His enemies causes them to lick the dust and His enemies will lick the dust. In other words, the enemies of Christ who are under the dominion of the serpent of old will meet the same fate as the serpent of old. They will lick the dust. They will return to the dust. They will be defeated. They will be destroyed once and for all. Same imagery in Isaiah 65, verse 25. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. And dust shall be the serpent's food. That's a description of Christ's victory over Satan, that he licks the dust, that dust is the serpent's food. But all of God's enemies, having joined forces with the evil one, eat the dust, return to the dust, lick the dust, and feast upon the serpent's food. And of course, Jesus says that when, when, G, when he returns to separate the sheep and the goats, that the goats who have rejected him, who have lived in sin and selfishness and an uncharitable attitude toward his people and toward his brethren, the least of these, that they will go to the place prepared for the devil and his angels. Dust eternally will be the serpent's food and the seed of the serpent as well. So there's a spiritual curse here that apart from the salvation of Christ coming into the life of a human being, unless that happens, all men and women die and die eternally. Fifthly, this curse is benevolent. All men in Adam are cursed benevolently. Why do I say that? Well, look at the passage. It could have been far worse. God said, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Dying you shall die. That didn't happen instantaneously. Uh, There was time. God delayed the enactment of the sentence against Adam and Eve and against humanity. God was benevolent. God gave time for the seed of the woman to come in the fullness of time and salvation to go forth to the nations, saving an innumerable multitude from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Time for repentance. And notice that even in terms of 
the relational and vocational curses, God allows marriage to continue. He allows procreation and multiplication to continue, future generations. Obviously, the seed of the woman is going to be the result of that. And notice in verse 17, In toil you shall eat of the ground all the days of your life. Now, you're going to eat all the days of your life in toil, but you're going to eat all the days of your life. Survival is possible. God is saying that through this difficult work, backbreaking as it is, you'll still be able to make ends meet. You'll be able to overcome the environmental hindrances and difficulties that have been placed in your path. Yes, the ground is cursed, but you'll be able to overcome the thorns and thistles. You'll be able to engage in agriculture. God curses mankind. He curses the man specifically, but in a benevolent way, far less than his sins deserved. Food continues to be the result of work and human survival continues. And uh, that's something, there's something to be said for that. We need to recognize in all of this the benevolence of God. Luke 6 verse 35, Jesus tells us this is integral to the character of God. He says, love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore, be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. So, God is kind. God is benevolent. God does not give all men the the complete, instantaneous destruction that they deserve, but rather He is kind to the unthankful and the evil. He gives time for repentance, but my friends, that time is running out. And you need to put your trust in Christ. And I'll close with this, that all men in Adam are cursed evangelistically. Remember, God comes to Adam and Eve, and Adam in particular here, evangelistically. He calls him out of the trees of the garden. He confronts him with his sin. He gives a promise of a Savior who is to come. And when he reveals this curse upon the earth, upon the ground, upon fallen life in this world, when he essentially says in Solomon's words, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. You're going to work, you know, you're going to engage in difficult labor every day of your life, and you're going to return to the dust. Vanity of vanities. It's futile. This cursed, fallen world is not your ultimate reward. This ought not to be the thing that you're seeking. You ought to seek things above and not things below. You ought to work, yes. But you need to be looking ahead for the coming of the Messiah through whose finished work you will have rest, who will make all things new, who will reverse the curse and take away death and disease and aging, who will revamp the entire universe, the heavens and the earth, completely renewing them such that in them will dwell righteousness and there will be nothing unclean in them. And everything will be glorious and beautiful. Even the human body restored, sown in corruption, raised up in glory. Sown in dishonor, sown in weakness, 
raised up in power and might. He's calling Adam and He's calling all of us. Rather than becoming depressed about this fallen world, rather than becoming depressed about the relationships that we struggle in, rather than becoming depressed about the aging of our physical body and the difficulty of our vocation and our work, we need to come to the point where we're just disillusioned with this world altogether. And the only reason that we do His will on earth is because we anticipate doing His will in heaven. The only reason we labor and do the difficult work that we face in this life as men is because we can see on the horizon the house made without hands, eternal in the heavens, when all of this vanity and all of this difficulty will be replaced with eternal glory for the children of God. The entire universe, the entire created order, Paul says, is groaning in bondage. And we can relate to that. At times, we're groaning under this curse, weary and heavy laden. And the Lord Jesus Christ says, I will give you rest. I'll give you rest here and now to continue through your difficult work and to be a man and get to work and all of these things. But I will give you that eternal rest when you enter into heaven. My friends, uh, this passage speaks to us so clearly of the agony and suffering and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. By the sweat of His face, drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, by the sweat of His face, He gives us the bread of life. The crown of thorns. He became a curse for us on the cross wearing that emblem of this cursed earth. The crown of thorns on His head as He died for our sins, as He was nailed to the tree. We ate from the forbidden tree. Jesus was nailed to the tree. He was hung upon the tree to take away our sins. And He was laid, as it were, in the tomb, in the accursed ground, and raised up as the first fruit of the new heaven and the new earth. He did not see corruption. And He was raised up in glory as a foretaste of our resurrection. My friends, if you're struggling, men, if you're, if you're feeling the weight and the burden of a fallen world, there's hope. There's hope of a world to come. There's hope from a Savior who understands what you're going through, who has given Himself for you if you simply trust Him, obey Him, and walk in His ways. There will be eternal rest for your soul and for your body. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we give thanks for the Lord Jesus Christ who makes all things new, who reverses the curse. Where sin has abounded and misery as well, Your grace has abounded all the more. And we pray that You would fix our eyes upon the Lord Jesus Christ. As we said with women looking to Christ as their heavenly husband, we pray that each man would look to Christ beholding the man who sets that example that we should walk in His steps. And we pray that by Your Spirit we would be conformed more and more to His image and likeness. For when He returns, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. We ask in His name. Amen.